My name is Trevor Mack. You are listening to the very first episode of Medicine Stream. So the philosophy of Medicine Stream is essentially starting, I guess, a stream of consciousness about a particular idea and beginning the discussion of the idea on a personal level and expanding that, expanding that, expanding that until we get to, you know, a more macro level. So just as how all streams start off very small and become bigger as they meet new streams, as they meet new ideas, they become rivers, and as rivers meet, these bigger ideas and bigger concepts become even more powerful. And just as all streams lead to rivers, all rivers lead to the ocean in one way or another. And so these discussions will will begin from, like I said, very personal anecdotes to macro level philosophies and ideas that affect more than just us. And I want to have these discussions by streams and by rivers because I think when we're around water we feel alive. When we're around water we feel this rejuvenation, this this feeling of this feeling of fullness. And I think throughout human history so much of our discussions and so much of people coming together has been happening around water. Water is a coming togetherness. And this is what this discussion series is all about. Is about At first, we're going to start off with a singular person and, and a singular idea and how it affects them and how they can expand upon it and how it affects society and you know Mother Earth as a whole. So hopefully we get more and more discussions going on. It'll be other people talking about that idea and then bridging in a more broader, uh, expanded conversation with, with myself and that person. So it's kind of, again, it's a stream of consciousness. So I thought, what better way to call this than medicine stream? Because water is medicine, just as water is life. Medicine, just being around water. We already feel good. You know, just me being around this stream, I'm already feeling so good. I've got such a big smile on my face. And so this is where we're going to start off. Episode 1, we're starting off at the Serpentine River. So the Serpentine River, which I'm sitting beside, is a river system that's located within the Katsi, Halkamalem, Kwantlen, and Lummi peoples, these nations. And all of these nations overlap with each other along this tributary system. And this system, if, it's, if you want to use colonial terms, starts off from, let's say, the uh, North Surrey area. And it travels about 34 kilometers all the way to Mud Bay in White Rock. And so White Rock, of course, being uh, Semiamu territory. So, so this was uh, a river, was, and I say was, uh, a river teeming with salmon. Chum, Coho, Chinook, Steelhead, all called this river home. However, in the late 1800s, 
settler farmers uh, began disturbing these habitats by installing dams and dikes. So the areas of what are now Surrey were the floodlands of the serpentine tributary system and uh, naturally the lands would flood because that's just what they do. They breathe. Just as we breathe, these floodplains breathe, but with water. However, in the 1920s, the settlers, you know, they didn't really like that. They wanted to use this land for agriculture, so they created the Surrey Diking District. And that was created to further disturb the area for expanded settlement for agriculture reasons. And all the while this was happening, you know, the Katsi, Halkamelan, Kwantlen, Lummi, Semiamu people, you know, they were pressuring governments to, to deal with the, the depleting salmon numbers. However, nothing was really done within uh, this system in particular. However, in the 1980s, settler volunteers began the Tynehead Hatchery. So the Tynehead Hatchery is located in Tynehead Park, which would be northern Surrey. And, uh, you know, these people without the help of provincial, federal, or the municipality governments. These people refinanced their homes, they raised money, and they created the Tynehead Hatchery. So these are just volunteers. And, uh, you know, the hatchery is now home to a classroom, a research station, and, of course, a fish hatchery, and it's run by the Serpentine Enhancement Society. So now these numbers from the salmon are actually coming back. And so now, just as the river breathes, just as we breathe, uh, you know, there is a large breath being inhaled. And I think we're at the beginning of that inhalation of Coho, Chinook, Chum, and Steelhead all coming back, which is really nice to see. And it's just really nice to see protected rivers and protected streams. So I hope we see more of that. And to start off our first discussion, just as how we're seeing the Coho, Chinook, Chum, and Steelhead all coming back to the Serpentine River, these discussions, like I said, are going to begin, you know, with smaller, intimate discussions, and they, you know, become discussions that are the size of the ocean. But just as the salmon come back, we're going to bring back these discussions and, and, and bring them home, if you will, and, and talk about how our own experiences and our own intimate understandings are so very well connected to these larger topics that we're talking about and i'm so happy to begin our first medicine stream on stories stories are so powerful stories can live thousands of years the people, the tribes, the civilizations that tell these stories, they can come and go. But as we all know, stories can live on. Because what's in stories are these universal truths. And it's the truths in these stories that live on. Whether they're internal stories that we're telling ourselves or external stories that are being told to us, I want to talk about how stories affect us on a personal level and on a societal and civilizational level. So I want to begin by telling a story, <laughs> a story of how I learned about internal stories, personally learning about them in the sense of 
really coming to grasps of how internal stories that I tell myself, how they affect me in my everyday thinking. In summer of 2019 or in spring of 2019, I was uh, writing my first feature film. And so my first feature film is called Portraits from a Fire. And when you're writing a film or you, when you're writing any type of story, but a film in particular, you have to, you have to, I guess, you know, you have five, six different characters. You have 10 different locations. You have each of these characters have their own character arcs. So the beginning, middle, end of each character. And then you have the beginning, middle, end of the entire film itself. And so you have to kind of keep track of all of these stories within a story. And so because when, you, when you're filming a movie, you're not necessarily always shooting it chronologically. So a lot of times, a lot of times you have to just know everything about your story. You know, I hope you know everything about your story that you're writing. <laughs> because I didn't. <laughs> so as I was in this process of, of writing the story with one of my good friends, Manny Mahal, you know, I was in this mindset of knowing the beginning, middle, end and, and knowing everything of how everything had to play out. And in doing so, uh, I was in a mindset of creating these internal narratives within myself that had to play out a certain way. And so I met, ended up, um, ended up meeting somebody and I ended up getting uh, a lot of feelings for this person. And, and, and what happened was because I was in this mindset, because I was in this internal self lecturing narrative, I ended up projecting that onto, onto this person and onto essentially a romantic relationship. So I essentially had the beginning, middle, end played out already in my head. You know, I had all of these other little intricate beginning, middle, ends that I told myself and lectured myself that was essentially you know telling a linear story to to a person who is non-linear to, to to an ever transforming ever evolving living human being and so so what ended up happening was you, you know that never that's never a good thing when you're placing that type of expectations into a relationship whether that's even romantic relationship a working relationship a friendship family relationship I think we can all relate to expecting something from somebody and it not turning out the way you want it you know that that's just you know that's universal right it doesn't just have to be a romantic relationship and and so that's what I learned from that experience on placing those types of narratives onto somebody else and, and, and so that, you know, I, I want to start with that story and how that affected me. And, and then I want to kind of expand that into, um, let's say, uh, stories that were, were told on, a, on a, you know, a community level. So now we have a situation. We have two sets of people and they are separated by a river, a river that they, nobody can pass or a river that nobody can get across. You know, these two groups of people, they begin telling themselves stories about the other people across the river. You know, one group, let's say the, the group A, let's say group A tells their people generation after generation, they tell them, okay, those other people on the other side of the river, they're evil people. They, they, 
you know, they they do really bad stuff. We can't believe what they're saying. If they come here, they will corrupt us, and we can't believe anything. And so imagine if these stories are told generation after generation after generation without any type of contact between each other. And so let's say Group B. Let's say Group B is telling their people, whoa, those people on the other side of the river, they're beautiful rays of light shoot out of their fingers and they can they can transform trees into 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 berries with just one look and one touch and gold can come out of their tears you know let's just say let's just say it's a really good example and so you have now these two sets of people that have essentially indoctrinated their own people with these stories you know whether they're whether they're, that's the intention or not, let's just say two children from each of these groups, somehow they cross the river. Say, I don't know, one kid gets a, gets a branch or a vine from a tree and then he jumps over somehow and he's like, whoa, I made it. And then he meets another child his or her age and they, they see each other and they say, wait a second, you're, you're, you're nothing like the stories that I've been told. You can't shoot berries out of your fingers. And then, you know, the other child's like, hey, you're not like, uh, you're not eating me. So you don't seem too evil. Like, wait, wait a second. What are these stories that I've been told? This, this isn't like anything like that. And so, so that's an example of like these external narratives that are told to us over and over. These repeated narratives and how they end up feeding these internal narratives we end up having. So in the sense of, let's say, my first example of, of you know, these, the relationship I had, imagine if the, what was feeding my internal narratives was actually also, there was an also external narrative that was like, oh, this person is actually, you know, really great, really this, 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 and this, and this. And then I'm like, uh, you know, the confirmation bias. I'm like, oh, hey, oh, that's what I already think. Little, like stories can come in the smallest of little streams and the biggest of rivers so now I want to bridge that example to I guess a more contemporary setting so you know let's say group A and group B you know those were the only stories that they told let's just say those were the only stories that they told and now after this technological explosion we are essentially bombarded by stories every single day the news there's a story in every single news segment that we watch every single commercial is telling us a story of why we should buy their product and now every single app you can open your phone up now and each app has the story feature in their phone so we even within each individual apps there is a setting a story setting and so each and every image and video that's shared on the internet is a story. These are all stories that are they're just bombarding us every single day. So we have thousands and thousands of stories and narratives that are affecting us consciously and subconsciously. And so now I want to kind of get into some bigger topics. And having said that, because we're talking about a singular idea and expanding upon it, you know, I want you to entertain the idea without, without getting too emotionally attached to it. 
So this is something that, you know, I want to bring back everything to water. There's no limit to the force of water. You can try to build a dam, you can try to put a tree over a stream, no matter what, that water, whether it's one year, 50,000 years, that water will get through it. So with ideas, let's not try to put a dam over our ideas. There's a quote that touches upon that pretty beautifully. So Aristotle, he says, It is the mark of an educated person to search for the same kind of clarity in each topic to the extent that the nature of the matter accepts it. So he's saying it's great for you as a person to just entertain a thought and actually research into that thought. But don't marry that thought. But it's good to go all the way with that thought and just entertain the principles of that thought. Because having said that, when you entertain a thought in that way, then you can get to the nature and to the foundational ways of how people are thinking based on that idea and based on that concept. So I really want to emphasize that, especially throughout this topic today. But it's going to be, you know, a theme that I really want to be, you know, the bedrock of these streams in which we're talking on. Let's get a bit bigger. Let's get to World War II. So, World War II, we had propaganda and stories used on a scale never before seen. This is finally we're getting into calamity level, catastrophic level of stories. You had the entire world in conflict on a level never before seen. And stories propelled these conflicts propaganda, caricatures that were created of the other, indoctrinated each side. These stories are what creates these internal narratives that become repeated. So these collective stories become internal stories. And so these narratives were repeated. These collective narratives were repeated so much that it became impossible to know that they were untrue. It became, it became infathomable to, to question these stories because it was repeated so much, just as how I, my example from the very beginning, Group A talking about Group B. Oh, these people are so evil. They're so evil. And that's the only story that's told. There's no other, there's no other disagreement stories coming in. There's nobody else being like, oh, hey, actually, um, you know, I went over there a couple years ago, and you know, they're actually they're, they weren't too bad. They're actually not a bad people. They're, that that doesn't happen, let's say, in this context of Group A and Group B, and that that didn't happen in World War II either. There weren't any groups at the level of the superpowers that were bringing up contradicting stories or stories that said, "Hey, actually, you know, the Nazis aren't too bad." I mean, we even just saying that right right now is pretty, pretty unfathomable. All of these massive stories, these propaganda that's been that was indoctrinating each each population that didn't stop after the wars. So in in 1950s, the CIA began funding student and cultural organizations and magazines as essentially as front organizations to further spread the propaganda because now we have two massive superpowers two massive superpowers flexing their muscles of how 
the concept of of how each should live on the planet essentially communism versus capitalism these are these aren't just concepts they were ways of seeing reality and thus ways of structuring society around that perception of reality and so the CIA saw communism as such a threat to the capitalistic way of seeing and perceiving reality that propaganda just flowered like none other like you know we're talking about so like World War II levels that's like that's kindergarten levels now so at the heart of this propaganda was was something called Operation Mockingbird so this was an operation created by the CIA in the 1950s to uh, fund student and cultural organizations as well as magazines and you know new newspapers and so they funded these front organizations so Revealed in public documents, the CIA, they even recruited leading American journalists from the New York Times, from Rolling Stone, Time, Life, and CBS. And so they were hired into propaganda networks, which were overseen by the Central Intelligence Agency. And so by now, the U.S. has convinced itself they were the bastion of freedom and democracy in the world, right? They were like capitalism is the way to go this is how we're doing it and so they conceived everything else as a threat and so what better way to control the perspective of reality than by controlling how the stories are told because telling stories is how we perceive reality so what better way to do that than by controlling the very companies who tell these stories so in 1976, the Church Committee was uh, tasked with investigating the CIA. And what they found was essentially a massive network of, of highly sophisticated ways of disseminating valuable propaganda information to various types of journalists and news outlets domestically and around the world. The report concluded that, quote, the CIA currently maintains a network of several hundred foreign individuals around the world who provide intelligence for the CIA and at times attempt to influence opinion through the use of covert propaganda. These, indiv in these individuals provide the CIA with direct access to a large number of newspapers and periodicals, scores of press services and news agencies, radios and television stations, commercial book publishers, and other foreign media outlets. Approximately 50 of the CIA assets are individual American journalists or employees of the U.S. media organizations. Of these, fewer than half are accredited by U.S. media organizations. The remaining individuals are non-accredited freelance contributors and media representatives abroad. More than a dozen United States news organizations and commercial publishing houses formally provided cover for the CIA agents abroad. A few of these organizations were unaware that they were provided this cover. So you had the CIA funding front organizations that would then tell journalists the stories that they needed to pursue, that edited articles of those journalists bringing in the stories, and a lot of times these journalists didn't even know that the organizations they were reporting to were CIA front organizations.
that were providing the cover. So William Casey was the CIA director from 1981 to 1987, and he's infamously quoted saying, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. So now you have examples of the Central Intelligence Agency, which is essentially an agency tasked with creating, disseminating stories around the world for the national security state of the United States. That's what essentially they do. They are the masters of narrative, or they try to be the masters of narrative. Because what is, what is intelligence in that sense? Intelligence is essentially the stories that we're telling each other. So now let's get to one of the most famous stories in the last few years, and that is Russia. Let's get to the foundational level of this story. During the 2016 primary campaign between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, the uh, cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, this was in March of 2016, notified the Democratic National Committee that its emails were leaked. And these emails revealed essentially this massive collusion between the Clinton campaign and the DNC to use the corporate media to essentially help Hillary Clinton get elected. So the DNC themselves, as well as the Hillary Clinton campaign, knew that controlling the narratives was the most effective way of persuading how the public viewed Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party, and events happening around the world. And so what they would do is they would leak stories to certain journalists. They had access to debate questions before the debate. And they sent opposition research en masse uh, to journalists around America in hopes of taking Bernie down. So this email leak story was, was so big that the head of DNC at the time, Debbie Washerman Schultz, she stepped down in disgrace. However, she was immediately hired by the Clinton campaign. Um, so essentially, the, the, what was the story at the time, the narrative was that the plastic pyramid held up by the compounded false narratives were beginning to crumble around the Democratic Party and United States democracy. However, the DNC and Democratic establishment needed a new narrative to take away from the public being exposed to this narrative of collusion and corruption. And that's when Russia comes in. So it turns out that the private cybersecurity company CrowdStrike, who owned the email server the DNC was using, actually forbade the FBI from investigating how the leaks occurred in the first place. So the FBI couldn't even confirm or investigate the server that the emails were leaked from and CrowdStrike they just said oh Russia did it just just believe us Russia did it and so from that very moment the foundation of this story comes from that so it comes from no third party no outside investigative process happening a new narrative began to take place and this narrative is 
essentially group A and group B, the narrative was is that the evil tribe across the river is doing all of this to us. Russia is the sole reason that this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. So a massive disinformation campaign began that blamed the leaks on Russia. And at the same time, the disinformation campaign delegitimized Trump's win by accusing him of falsely colluding with the Russians. Almost immediately, the collective narrative went from the, the corruption in the Democratic Party and the rigging of the primaries to everybody look over there at Russia. So this just happened in an almost blink of an eye. Let's get even more contemporary. In the past few years, we've seen massive movements and rallies opposing the neoliberal governments of the world. Millions of people from all shades and backgrounds are taking to the streets. In Chile, Hong Kong, Iraq, United States, just to name a few. In France, you had the Yellow Vest protest movement that would be a 100-plus week movement that spanned the entirety of France. In defense of their democracy against China, the people of Hong Kong took to the streets in essentially a never-before-seen ratio of public engagement of protest. In the U.S., a movement that began in 2016 with Bernie Sanders' campaign for president has expanded and his political revolution is on levels never before seen in the United States since the civil rights movement. The political revolution led by Bernie Sanders has gotten the story of neoliberalism into the mainstream. Atrocious levels of economic inequality, the inhumane system of healthcare as a business, the absurdity of never-ending wars are just a few narratives that have caught on to the collective consciousness of the United States, which lets people focus on the real narrative that neoliberal systems of capitalistic governments have essentially been systematically lying to their own citizens for the last 60 years. Now, I find myself sitting by a stream by myself, social distancing, if you will, in the wake of the deadly coronavirus, COVID-19. And having been learning about the hijacking of stories that have happened throughout human history, I come to the curiosity of the story of coronavirus and COVID-19 and how it relates to these mass movements around the world. All of these mass movements require people coming together. They require a massive amount of people that find the common ground within these narratives, these truths. Just as I said, people, concepts, systems, civilizations come and go, but the universal truths live on. And that's what connect all of these movements happening all around the world, the universal truths. So what is the best way to keep people from assembling together? What is the best way to keep people afraid of coming together? 
all of these mass movements have essentially fizzled out. And now we're seeing this, this huddled mentality of isolationism and fearing the other from this coronavirus. And it just so happens to be that it's on an American election year with the biggest political revolution seen since the civil rights movement. So all of these mass movements against the neoliberalism state, if you will, have essentially stopped. And and it, it kind of, it it's something that I'm really curious about because I was only grade three when 9-11 started. And 9-11 was essentially the biggest story of my generation and how how the story led to a million Iraqis dead led to the rape of Afghanistan and other countries in the Middle East all out of the fear these internal narratives were taken advantage of and were then brought out to an external narrative that they could blame the other all I want to say is just stories are super important and they can affect us in ways we don't even realize. And so just as how salmon start off in a stream, they go to the ocean, they always come back to the stream. They always come back. And so just as how I, I was talking about my internal narratives that I was telling myself in the relationship that I had, and we went all the way out to the Iraq War, World War II, the DNC, the 2016 election, now coronavirus, which is impacting the entire planet. All I want to do is suggest is taking these ideas and just floating downstream with them. Don't try to swim upstream. Just float down the stream and see where it takes you. Just ask these questions about narratives and about the importance of narratives within our society and civilization and how we perceive reality from these stories and perceive relationships with one another from these stories and what and how what is happening now the stories around coronavirus is is taking advantage of these internal narratives that we've been telling ourselves that we have to deal with ourselves and that's essentially what every world leader since the beginning of time has done they've taken advantage of internal narratives they've grasped upon it and they've thrown it across the river and they said that's who's doing it and they said that's who we have to fear that's the bad guy and I think we have to remember that coming together through stories is what's healing. And we can't forget that in these times. Anyway, so these are just some things to think about while you sit by a river in hashtag social distancing. So this is the, uh, the first episode of Medicine Stream. And, you know, I, I hope that I can feature far smarter people on the podcast to have them share their streams of consciousness. I hope these are not only engaging, fulfilling and stimulating, but, you know, I, I, it's something that you don't necessarily have to believe. 
These are just ideas to entertain, but not hold on to. My name is Trevor Mack, and this has been Medicine Stream. Nanano scene.